Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, a 5e D&D podcast where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. Today's topic is necromancy. So... To start things off, I'm just going to ask you a really important question just to get our minds properly suited to the subject. If your spouse dies and comes back as a zombie, is that necrophilia? Yes. Yes, it is. She's a corpse. Well, he's a corpse. So they, they are a corpse. And fucking corpses is bad. Don't do it, kids. Even if they're sentient Actually, and don't spouse? fuck anything, kids. Yes. Wait. Oh. That that's hard. I I can't say for so. The, the church won't like that. The, the, a monitor won't like that. I don't like hey, that. Who are you to speak it for sounds a disgusting. You're not a cleric. I, I'm sorry. I apologize. I thought that's my divine right as a dungeon master. I could say whatever the gods say. Whatever. You don't even use a monitor in your world. Shh. Quiet. Uh, <laughs> for a split second. There was a blast in the air as a new divine being appeared and said, Necrophilia, not cool. And then he vanished, obliterated by some divine being's power. <laughs> okay. That's not where I was expecting that to go, but I'm glad that you enjoyed yourself. Moving on. All right. In all seriousness, though, necromancy is a very interesting subject. So we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different aspects of it and how to utilize it should you choose to. So, necromancy is unique in that it is the only damage type that is also an entire spell school. So, magic in general is divided into schools of magic, where it's uh, abjuration, conjuration, divination, enchantment, evocation, illusion, necromancy, and transmutation. So each of these are options for wizards to specialize in, as well as potentially having other subclasses and other classes that have 
a focus on necromancy in particular. And necromancy, as I said a moment ago, is the only spell school that is also its own damage type, necrotic. Almost every type of damage spell, whether it's, you know, lightning bolt or fireball, whatever the damage type is, it's generally considered to be evocation magic, since that's, you know, the magic of some explosive result of energy of any type, usually. Necromancy is the general exception, oddly enough. So everything, whether you go from uh, chill touch, cantrip, all the way up to the high level magic, like true resurrection, all of that type of magic, whether it's damage or necromantic effects, are all part of the necromancy school of magic. And that is just a very interesting thing. It's almost like they sorted out most of the necromantic damage abilities into that category as well, so that a dungeon master and player has the easy decision to make about whether to include necromancy in their world at all. And the fact that they do have it sorted in such a way is interesting to me. Whether good interesting or bad interesting is definitely up for debate. So let's have at it. What is your opinion on necromantic magic? When you really think about it in the story, it comes down to its ability to bring things, people back from the dead. I, I guess it applies to things as well. So for example, bringing back those like zombies, skeletons and stuff. And also like partially bringing up sort of people back in sort of contorted ways or properly bringing back people. So that's somewhat true, but I would say that that answer is incomplete. So to borrow a phrase from older D&D, as well as one that does still appear in just a rare few of the necromantic spells, necromancy is just the magical use of negative energy. So there's a really strong spell called Finger of Death, a seventh level spell that says for its first sentence, you send negative energy coursing through a creature that you can see within range, causing it searing pain. So you would technically have fingered them to death. It's a ranged spell. <laughs> yes. Finger of death. Finger to death. But point being, I would argue that necromancy is more just the use of negative energy, and it is the contrast to radiant energy, which is which could be said to be positive energy. So it is incredibly well suited to just be called the magic of death, whether that is to raise the dead in some form or other, or whether that is to bring a person down to death through, well, painful negative energy. So Remy, mm -hmm. how would you use necromancy in your world? Oh boy. So an argument could be made that I actually overuse necromancy just because it is a magic that I find to be incredibly interesting potentially powerful, and also just really useful in general. So there's actually been a couple of spells that have just been mentioned over the course of R&R history. So in our wish episode, I mentioned that one of the best uses potentially of the wish spell is the necromantic spell clone, which normally has a casting time and a lot of expenses, but potentially makes the character that it's cast on damn near immortal if you just keep casting that spell so to have backup bodies 
is just one aspect of necromancy to guard yourself against death, which is interesting in that that is a different twist on the typical uses of just it being for zombies. One very interesting thing about D&D necromancy in particular is the fact that all of the many, many spells that do cause animation of a body, it is very, very binary in that it is either that a zombie or skeleton gets risen up or just like that type of stupid undead, or it is a complete resurrection. So fun fact, almost every ability in the game that can resurrect is a necromancy spell. Revivify, raise dead, resurrection, true resurrection, all necromancy spells. There is the only single exception that is not a necromancy spell is the druid spell reincarnate, which is a transmutation, which fits with a reincarnation. But for the most part, resurrection is necromancy. So even if you are a cleric or a bard or someone who has some ability to raise the dead, you're technically doing dark magic if that is the interpretation of such that you go by. On the other hand, because of the fact that it is stupid undead or complete resurrection, there is not any option available to player characters to do something like turn into a lich, which is a sentient undead. So there's absolutely no power in any of the D&D books for player characters to raise smart undead, which is a kind of interesting choice, I feel. Well, okay, let, um, let me rephrase. There is one option, technically, which is the create undead spell. But while that can create sentient undead, such as, you know, whites or ghasts and mummies, there's not undead in the terms of the creature is raised with their own memories. So that is what I mean by the fully stupid undead or alive undead, is that does the creature you raise have their original memories is the borderline of where I'm judging that. Well, I'm, I'm fairly certain that it's most likely to keep things simple um, in the first place. But as with all things, I'm sure that if you are DMing a game and you feel like, oh, it'd be interesting to have something like that, and the undead stick around for long enough that you actually can give them characters and stuff. Or maybe whenever you revive, like bring back a new set for whatever reason, the same soul gets transferred into these bodies. Um, it could be interesting to have these like set of characters that keep on popping back up whenever you use a spell. One use of necromancy that is very much a subject that could be debated on between us and just dungeon masters in general. What does happen to the soul when necromancy is used? And depending on the world that you're in, if you run a world where there is actual dark magic that can have bad effects on the caster, that's definitely a thing that could be interesting. Or you could also have it be, what effect does dark magic have on the soul? If a person is resurrected, are there ways that that can go wrong? I've always found a particular joy in destroying precious memories, especially in games. Really? Indeed. <laughs> so I find necromancy a very, very powerful tool, which is why Riftwake doesn't really have any form of proper revivication of any sort, because it's always fun to see what happens when the first people who try 
to do something that's only just become possible, um, if it ever does become possible, do. And what's liable to happen is accidents are going to happen. People that once used to be a certain way are going to come out wrong. And that's always fun to have one person who feels like, oh, that thing, that thing was once my wife that I tried to save. Oh, no. And that's always a bit, I don't know, lovely in a sort of uh, sadistic way. Okay. But yeah, honestly, though, how you choose to use necromancy in general in your own games is something that another thing I say too often is very much worth thinking about. So that being said, how much necromancy do you want to have in your game? So there's a few things that could influence that decision. If you think about it, necromancy in general, most people tend to split into two parts of it, which is the resurrection and the raising of undead. So looking at it from those two halves, we talked a lot in the death or dying episode about the effects that available resurrection can have on the world. So if you do have a high availability of necromancy from that side of things, that does have a massive influence on the game, both from the, just the culture of the world itself, as well as the attitude of your players. Because in Riftwake, where resurrection is not a thing, in theory, you would have characters that would be much more careful in the decisions they make because death is death. So just like in the real world, you only got one shot at things. But in worlds where you know, if I die, you know, the party has the gold to resurrect me, you will very likely be more reckless a person knowing that even if it is subconsciously in the back of your head. So having necromancy can change the decisions that players and even a party make. And, and this is why, and this is why for me in particular, I never want like uh, any sort of revival to be um, easy in any sort of way without massive loss, because it's very, very easy, right? Have you ever had this thing in a movie where you're like, oh no, that important person died. And then it's just like, and they're back because of like some ra random thingamajig that they made up to just quickly bring this person that's supposed to be dead back. There's no narrative payoff. It's boring. The only reason why this entire thing with Sarah worked out is because it was the only revival potion. <laughs> For the record, just so y'all know, that was not a planned thing. That was in session that we got the idea and made that choice. And that was a really fun moment. So the fact that the guilt of a thing and knowing that we have this once in a lifetime opportunity created what I feel was a really nice character moment for Lupix and Morris, as well as for Gorf in his uh, dislike for that decision. So on the other hand, when you're thinking about a necromancer in terms of the usual meaning of the term, the hordes of undead, big bad evil guy. There are a number of ways to do that. So I mentioned earlier the finger of death spell. I did not finish reading it because that, well, I was saving it for now, honestly. The last line of it, a humanoid killed by this spell rises to the start of your next turn as a zombie that is permanently under your control, following your verbal orders to the best of its ability. So even though it would be quite slow, by using that spell every day, technically a high enough level wizard or 
sorcerer or warlock would have the availability to cast the spell potentially up to three times using you know seventh eighth and ninth level spell slots so in theory even a max level character would still only be able to really get three permanent zombies per day which definitely limits the whole horde side of things but could honestly be used as a story thing so if you have you know a leveled wizard antagonist against your party and then no okay every single day that passes they can have three more zombies under their control that can create a real you know ticking clock scenario of okay so we know that if we leave this guy and don't take him down within a month that's 90 zombies so talking about action economy as i so often love to do it just becomes this ticking clock every day there can just be one even if it's just one a day one zombie one zombie that would mean that it's 30 a month 365 a year and considering that a necromancer is so often portrayed as someone who has become a lich or just found other ways to slow or reduce their aging which is another set of magic that does exist in D&D anyway there are non-lich ways to live longer or better but anyway so that being said even just one a day if you leave a lich alone for 10 years let's say or if you just have this character having been in the background for that amount of time then just by that spell even only using the rules listed in the D&D books available to player characters so no hand wave dm shenanigans then you can have 3650 zombies easily by just doing one a day so even without hand wavium you can have a proper horde despite uh hand waving narratively speaking right how i would do something similar to that would be why you have this necromancer oh he's evil and then you'd be like okay he's gathering power so that he can bring up all of them at once which okay hand waving however it's cooler because you <laughs> run to the place and then you're like and he's like haha i'm evil and stuff M- magic evil magic stuff and then you see the graves with hands popping out and shit like that and it's like now you're in my trap you know that kind of thing and oh, so yes. it creates this cool moment but i can see how you could also do the same thing with that it's like slowly day by day in the city every day there's someone who goes missing you don't know where they are but you can guess and then suddenly one day you know it's you know it's time and coming in from breaking through the doors is this horde that appears out of nowhere seemingly from the <laughs> sewers to the alleyways there's this horde of zombies that appear it's just a evil guy biding his time you can work it out either way true so a pretty cool moment so just for the record i do tend to have a somewhat harder stance than a lot of other dms on the topic of hand waving which is for a specific reason which is of course based on my overly logical self which is any rule that i put into the world i put into the world so anytime that my players find like an evil wizard spell book that has you know such a potentially powerful ability well then that's a thing that my players could potentially gain access to that's a thing that other people in the world could potentially gain access to so that is part of the reason 
that I do try to toe the line on official abilities more often than not. Do I introduce homebrew? All the fucking time, yes. But that is just, so you're aware, the reason why I tend to toe that line the way that I do. Although on the other hand, I have introduced other types of necromancy in my world. I have introduced, you know, arguably more powerful or tweaked types of undead. So the thing is, I just find what I find to be the acceptable line of I'm okay with this just being out there. So considering how powerful the existing necromancy spells are, then there is a lot of room for a DM who wants to homebrew to play around. If you want to introduce revenants into your world to have there be more types of sentient undead out there, that's awesome. That's a really cool thing. Like that's a thing that you can have there be, you know, a revenant who is someone who is back with their full memories and have then you have the lore options of, okay, how did this happen? Is this the kind of thing where they made a deal with the God of death or they, you know, fought a battle in the underworld to earn the right to come back? Uh, is it just a different type of resurrection? Maybe just everyone who gets resurrected in your world comes back as a revenant. So everyone who sees them know that this is a person who died. There are so many lore opportunities around types of undead that it is an area that is so much fun for me and very much one that is flexible enough for a lot of people to play around in. So another rather interesting aspect of necromancy is the fact that a lot of classes actually do have necromantic aspects or abilities built into them. So back during our clerics episode, I actually mentioned that there were two subclasses, two devoted to death in different ways. So there's the death domain as well as the grave domain. So both of these classes, I want to say that the one of them, I think death, is listed as an option for evil archetypes of characters. But in general, necromancy does not have to be devoted to evil. It is the use of negative energy, but again, how you interpret that is very, very much up for debate. You could have like a lawful cleric of the death domain be like the court necromancer whose job is like to cast speak with dead or potentially even animate dead or having there be use of their necromantic abilities in order to protect their area or to help with criminal justice, like I mentioned. So there are so, so many options for non-evil use of necromancy that I am more than a little bit irked that they are typecast so much as automatically evil. And the, the Death Domain Cleric is really good. It gets a whole bunch of those necromantic spells, but even in addition to that, they get a really powerful channel divinity to just do a massive dose of necrotic damage added onto their target. They get the ability to just ignore resistance to necrotic damage. So the ability to ignore resistance is normally a feat on its own. So the fact that the Death Domain Cleric just get that at 6th level as an ability is really good. Not to mention that like so many of the other Cleric Domains, their weapon attacks just get scaling necrotic damage as they level up. Just to add necrotic damage to their weapons. But... One of the really cool things about that particular class is the fact that 
as they level up through it, they gain the ability to split a spell to target two targets instead of just the one. So considering action economy, even at first level of death domain, and then just improving even more once they're higher up at 17, to gain the ability to have one cast spell target two creatures doubles your action economy and is a really good thing as I say. I, blah, blah. Anyway, so Grave Domain also is very similar to that one. They get a lot of the necromantic types of spells. They get a whole bunch of death type abilities. They get the ability to... Oh, okay. So their channel divinity, instead of just doing a boost of necrotic damage, they have an interestingly different effect in that what they do is make a creature vulnerable to a single attack, meaning they will do double damage on an attack. And considering the fact that they do have the ability, as all clerics do, to have access to a number of powerful spells, the fact that you can double your damage with your channel divinity is not to be underestimated. But even besides that, where the grave differs from the death domain, so the grave domain clerics also gain the ability to not fall as easily as other creatures. So one of those spells gives them temporary hit points pretty often, but also they gain the class feature Sentinel at Death's Door, which is just another of those power names that I really do enjoy. But what's so cool about that particular one as a reaction a number of times per day equal to your wisdom modifier you or a creature you can see within 30 feet can negate a critical hit and just turn it into a regular one so as a cleric you should have at least a plus two or plus three to your wisdom so two or three times a day you can just nope a crit and just turn it into a regular hit and cancel all effects of the crit and the sheer bonus survivability to the party for that ability is real good so but moving on from clerics i even talked a little bit last week about how there is a monk with some necromantic ability or was it the monk no i think it was the druid where i last mentioned it so there's the druid circle of spores that has a connection with the more necromantic side of things the wizard also has its own school of necromancy which gives them all kinds of cool necrotic abilities so there's a weird contrast through the game of necromancy is evil you shouldn't do it but here's all these really really cool subclasses and necromantic spells and abilities that you can use so when you're using necromancy in your own games at home something to just think a lot about is how much necromancy do you want to be available? But also, what do you want the people of your world to think about necromancy? There are a lot of magic users out there in a D&D setting that just have crazy abilities to just deal damage. So if you have a person who can shoot a fireball 150 feet and kill dozens of people, how does something like that get viewed in comparison to someone who just uses necromantic magic like just the normal spells, something like Inflict Wounds, which just is a single target damage. So if there is a negative connotation around necromancy, does that extend to just spells that deal necromant uh, necrotic damage 
or is it only for those spells that do cross the line of life and death? So one quick tangent, though, just one necromantic spell that is severely underrated that just deserves to be mentioned. Chill Touch. It's a necromancy cantrip that's just one of the normal just damage spells available to sorcerers, wizards, and warlocks. But it has an effect to it that is amazing. So on a hit, does 1d8 necrotic damage, scaling with your level, and the target can't regain hit points until the start of your next turn. Until then, the hand clings to the target. So you're conjuring a ghostly skeletal hand that holds onto an enemy and prevents them from gaining hit points. And note that it does not say cannot regain hit points through magic, doesn't say cannot regain hit points through resurrection, uh, through uh, regeneration. It just says flat out cannot regain hit points. So one important fact about the rules of D&D 5e specific beats general when it comes to rules there are a lot of general rules that have exceptions to them so this is one of them so the reason i mention this is being so powerfully underrated the fact that it does prevent hit point gain means that if you use this spell you will stop an enemy from being able to have healing magic cast on them you will prevent an enemy from being able to use a healing potion you will be able to prevent enemies like vampires or trolls from regenerating. And the fact that that is available as a cantrip to three magic-using classes is incredibly underrated. So, that being said, we've talked a lot about the more typical types of necromancy. There are, however, some exceptions in terms of exactly what it does around the world. So, in terms of... So, where I'm going with this, speak with dead third level spell but you basically just need to have the head of a corpse at least and you can ask it questions it doesn't question the soul so it's only animating that portion of the corpse but the fact that you can literally speak with dead is an incredibly powerful ability and something that can have incredible repercussions in the world in terms of criminal justice so if you have an ability with magic to speak with those who died, hey, who killed you? That guy. Okay, arrest that guy. Zone of truth. Did you kill that guy? Yes. Guilty. Execution. Done. I do have to say, it's a massive loss that their soul doesn't come back or anything because it's like, we want a talking head. That'd be cool. Well, so this is one of those areas where you could potentially homebrew a more powerful version because speak with dead is only a third level spell so if you want to say you want to have an ability that will call the soul back but release it when you're done then you could potentially do that as something like a fifth level spell since that's the same as raise dead so that would be perfectly reasonable to me or if you wanted to do something like create like permanently call the soul back, but inhabiting a skull as, you know, a sentient undead. Well, again, you've got resurrection at seventh level, true resurrection at ninth level. So honestly, I would even say as a seventh level spell, potentially, that would kind of be okay in my book, perhaps of, okay, you bind the soul of a, you bind a willing soul as the normal 
phrasing in Resurrection Ghost, you bind a willing soul to their skull. So that would create enough limits on it that they have to be willing and you have to have their intact skull. And then if you have that, then yeah, that would be pretty reasonable to me. And then that would be a fucking cool thing to have in the world. Because then you can just have, okay, let's say there's a, you know, great teacher at some Bard Academy who is, you know, up there in age and doesn't want to go down one of the normal routes of immortality, then they can just say, I want to keep teaching, but I am so sick of the frailty of old age that I never want to experience that again. So bind my soul to this skull and I will continue giving lessons until I'm sick of it or fired. Hmm. What happened if that guy got fired? That'd be a weird situation. How would you try to find work as a skull? Anyway, that's not important at the moment. (laughs) Point being, Necromancy has a lot more options to it than most people give it credit for. And DMs absolutely have the right to tweak things as much as they want to. And that is always something that I do encourage. Make the world the way you want it to be. Make it work the way you want it to be. Make people react the way you want them to. And most importantly of all, have fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Tier start as low as a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind the scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, where you'll be able to chat with the cast, and even a shout out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit, on the subreddit, r slash Podcast. And now, send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffsandrules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.